All right, well, if you have your Bible, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through chapter 17, verse 6. But I want to start out in James chapter 5. In James chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. We've come to the point in 1 Kings to one of my favorite Bible characters, Elijah. And really, Elijah was a man like us. That's right. He was a man just like us. In James chapter 5, James gives us his commentary on this man, Elijah. At the end of verse 16 through verse 18, it says, The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. The NIV version says a man just like us. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Dear Lord, go with us tonight. Father, open our hearts and minds to your word. I ask you that you'll help me to preach this word, Lord, and just help me to remember what I've studied. Father, just speak through me with the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, the conclusion that James comes to here about the prophet Elijah is that he was a man just like us. Had a nature just like us, James said. Uh, I mentioned that the NIV version says that uh, he was a man just like us. Well, that statement is really pretty shocking if you know anything about Elijah, which most of us do. Because anyone who knows anything about Elijah knows that he was hardly anything like us, right? This guy faced the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel and called down fire from heaven. This dude struck down 450 false prophets. This guy outrun... This amazes me. This dude was faster than Carl Lewis. Anybody know who Carl Lewis is, the old Olympian? This dude outran horses and chariots for 17 whole miles from Carmel down to Jezreel. This guy brought the dead back to life, and he himself did not die, but he was carried into heaven in a chariot of fire in that whirlwind. And so we ask ourselves, how is this man like us? Well, James says he is. Scripture tells us that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours. Elijah was a real person. He put his sandals on one foot at a time. Elijah was a human being with human passions, with human problems. Uh, He had human needs just like we do, just like any human being does. And so this means that uh, although he was a great prophet, did many great things for the Lord, Elijah's life of faith and obedience and prayer is not out of reach for you and I because he was a man just like us. And so he stands as an example of godliness for each and every one of us. One reason Elijah was just like us, and by the way, you can flip back over to 1 Kings chapter 16 if you're not having already, but one reason he was a man just like us is because he lived in an evil day as well. He lived in an evil day just like we do. He lived when Ahab, that horrible evil king, 
was a ruler over Israel. If you'll remember, the seven kings of the northern kingdom of Israel who followed David and Solomon were the sorriest group of guys you'll probably ever read about. We've seen Jeroboam. Jeroboam really started it all. He set up all these idols. Nadab, after him, was an evildoer. Basha was a murderer. Elah was a drunkard. Zimri was also a horrible murderer. He actually murdered Elah. And then Omri, up to this point, was even worse than all the rest of them. It said in chapter 16, verse 25, that he did more evil than all who were before him. But now we've come to one the Bible says was worse than any of them. Ahab was the worst of all. And listen, that was no small accomplishment compared to the ones that come before him. This guy had to really be evil to be considered worse than all of them. We see it in verses 29 through 30 and in verse 33. It says, In the 38th year of Asa king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri became king over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And then verse 33, it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Ahab was bad. As a matter of fact, Ahab was so bad that he considered the sins of his fathers to be a trivial thing, is what verse 31 tells us. He considered the sins of all the ones that come before him to really not be so serious. Not that big of a deal. The sins of his fathers were inconsequential to him. And I want to, I want to pause and say this right here. If you live a life of sin, that's how your kids are going to look at sin as well. They're going to look at your sin and say, well, that's no big deal. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to pave the way for even worse sins. And that's what happened with Ahab. So his life stands as really a warning for parents to live by the grace of God, uh, lest their children give their hearts to evil, even more evil than King Ahab did, than all the sons of the kings of Israel did uh, uh, with their fathers before them. Ahab was also so bad that he married probably the most wicked heifer that's ever lived on the face of the earth, Jezebel. We see that in verse 31. It says, And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians. You've heard the old saying that behind every good man is an even better woman. Well, you can just flip that around on his face with Ahab because behind this evil king was a more, even more evil woman. They were, I guess you could say they were kind of like the Bonnie and Clive of the Old Testament. They were evil. It says Jezebel was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. The name Ethbaal, you can, you can see in his name what he's all about. He's an idol worshiper. He's a pagan. He worships the false god of Baal. But Ahab married her anyway. Why would Ahab do such a thing? The reason Ahab married this old gal was because he wanted a political alliance between Israel and the Sidonians. Israel and Sidon. He did it for financial gain, for financial benefit. 
But sadly, it also established an even greater reliance between Israel and the false god Baal. And so he traded his own welfare, really, and the welfare of all his people, the welfare of his whole nation, for what he thought was going to be a little bit of financial prosperity. He was willing to worship a false god, a demonic god, for a little bit of money. Does it sound familiar? Things haven't changed much, have they? Ahab was also so bad that it wasn't enough for him to marry a Baal worshiper in old Jezebel, but he also wanted to become a Baal worshiper himself. In verse 32 through 33, it says, Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Remember, Samaria was now the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom. And Ahab made a wooden image also to Asherah. That wooden image, it says there, that's your version might say, an Asherah pole. And that's what that was. It was a pole to the goddess Asherah. Baal and Asherah were the god of rain or the god of storms uh, and the goddess of fortune. And so this is what old Jezebel worshipped and now this is what Ahab himself is worshipping. Ahab built this altar uh, to Baal and also this sacred pole for Asherah for this unholy couple so people could worship them. So they could... Uh, those people could come in and join in with him and his apostasy, his turning away from the one true God. Do you know what was involved in this and the reason it was so popular? The same reason this, this type of sin is so popular today. Temple prostitution. Sex. Really, they were worshiping sex. That's why this was so popular, because they could go to these temples and they could have wild orgies while they were supposedly worshiping this God. That's the whole reason they liked it so much. That's why this was so popular. And folks, what do people do today? People live their whole lives and they let their whole lives be controlled by sex. Perverted sex. There's nothing wrong with sex in the confines of marriage, but when it comes to outside of that, it's a perversion in the eyes of God. Amen. But look at what people vote for in the United States of America today. They vote for so-called human rights. What is that? That's just the right for them to have sex with whatever and whoever they want to. The same thing. Things have not changed much today. Well, Ahab was also so bad that his evil influenced others to great evil. In verse 34... It says, In his days, Hail of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Segub. He set up its gates, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, if you'll remember, back to the book of Joshua, whenever God supernaturally defeated the city of Jericho, Right? Those walls came tumbling down. Do you remember all that? Do you remember that God spoke a curse against rebuilding that city? Yes. In Joshua chapter 6, verse 26, it says, Joshua charged them at that time, saying, Cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn, and with his youngest he shall set up its gates. Now, ever since the days of Joshua to this point, nobody had dared 
to defy God's curse against Jericho. But this guy, Hael of Bethel, he deliberately rebuilt that city, and that shows us just how bad things had become under Ahab's rule. Ahab's evil gave other people confidence in their evil. And that's what an evil leader will do. And so this guy decides, I don't care what the Word of God says, I'm rebuilding the city of Jericho. And so he deliberately did the things that God commanded him not to do. And Ahab, he had to have gave permission and been okay with it. What's really sickening about this is that this included sacrificing his children to get the job done. You don't see that so much in the New King James Version of this. But let me read you the translation from some other versions. It said, verse 34, In the NIV and the ESV, it reads like this, In Ahab's time, Hael of Bethel rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up the gates at the cost of his youngest son, uh, Segov. That same verse in the New American Standard Bible reads like this, in the days of Hael, the Bethelite uh, rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundations with the loss of his firstborn, and he set up the gates with the loss of his youngest. And I'll read one more to you. The New Living Translation says it like this. During his reign that Halil, a man from Bethel, rebuilt Jericho, when he laid its foundations, it cost him the life of his oldest son, and it cost him the life of his youngest son. You see, most Bible scholars believe that this means that Ohio performed a literal child sacrifice of his two sons to get this job done, which, by the way, was common in Canaanite culture, common in their worship of these false gods, including Baal and Asherah and Molech. It could speak of God's visiting them in judgment and taking the lives of those two boys. But either way, his uh, recklessness in putting his own ambitions and his own desires and his own pleasures ahead of his very own sons cost them their life. He sacrificed their life, in other words, for his pleasure. What's the most prominent sin in the world today? It's sacrificing the life of innocent children for the pleasure of having sex. Mm -hmm. And I want to remind us all of something. In the Canaanite culture and in every culture in history that has been wiped out, that has suffered great judgment, there's two predominant sins that cause the Lord to come in judgment. Perverted sex and killing of the innocents. Mm-hmm. Folks, we are prime for judgment. That's right. Just like this King Ahab and his group of people in Israel were. Well, again, all of this should sound familiar because we also live in the kind of times that Elijah lived in. We live in a day where children consider the sins of their parents really a trivial matter and so they go on and just to perform even worse sins we live in a day of casual sex recreational drugs uh, needless violence the slaughter of innocent children we live in a day when secular and spiritual leaders trust in their own schemes rather than trusting in god for the health of the nation and rather than trusting in god for the growth of the church 
right? People think that if we entertain people here, more people will come. Even if that's true, if we filled this house up with entertainment, we have done them no good for eternity. The only thing worth doing in this church is praising the Lord and preaching His Word uh, uh, doctrinally sound and unapologetically. Even if just three people show up. We live in a day... When people bow down before the idols of money and power and sex and self. So, James was right, wasn't he? Elijah was a man like us. He lived in an evil day. Almost identical to our day. Well, Elijah was also a man like us because he knew the same God that we know. Elijah served the very same God that we serve today. God hasn't changed. And God never will change. Chapter 17 opens up with uh, the prophet Elijah testifying towards Ahab some very powerful words to him. He said this in chapter 17, verse 1. As the Lord God of Israel lives. Every single word in that phrase is uh, very important. And he used them for a significant reason. He used the word Lord. He said, as the Lord. The name Lord is the name Yahweh, the name Jehovah, the the name that is above all names, the Hebrew God, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel. That's who he is expressing to old wicked Ahab. This Lord was Elijah's God. The prophet's very name means my God is the Lord. That's the name that he is coming to Ahab in, the Lord God of Israel. And that's what he says next, the Lord God of Israel. That title, God of Israel, recognizes God's covenant with his people Israel. And so he's saying to Ahab, he's saying that this God really is the God of Israel. Okay, Uh, Oh, Ahab, you may be trying to forget about him. You may be trying to push him to the side. But guess what? It doesn't do any good because this, the Lord, the Hebrew God, Yahweh, Jehovah, this is the God of Israel, not Baal. Amen. And then he says, the Lord, the God of Israel, lives. Right? Elijah emphasized the fact that the God of Israel is not a dead, worthless idol like Baal and like uh, Oasherah. He is not dead. He is alive. And He is the only true and living God. And this is the God that Elijah worshipped. This is the one he had confidence in in his wicked day. And it's the same one we can have confidence in. And so Elijah's opening remarks to Ahab is really a stinging rebuke to the false god that he worshipped. He let Ahab know that Baal is nothing. He let him know that Baal is not a god who lives, and really he's deader than a doornail. The truth is, even people who believed in Baal, they couldn't really consider him a living god. Not according to their own theology. Their theology was a walking contradiction. According to the principles of their own theology, this Baal worship. Baal was alive during the rainy season, which was a crucial time of the year in a dry climate like they lived in, right? But he was dead during the dry season. 
Now, what kind of God is it that would be dead at the time you need him most? Right? That's a worthless God. This is so ridiculous. But these people worship this mess. And so when Elijah stood before Ahab in this parched wilderness that he was in, and he spoke of the living God, he was rebuking Baal, the so-called rain god. He said, look, Ahab, this, this is the rain god, and it's dry. We're in a famine. What good is he? Where is your rain? Elijah's living God, though, he was the Lord of both the dry season and the rainy season. He's the, one that can, he's the one that can shut up the rain and the one that could send the rain. And listen, the same God is alive today, rain or shine. God is God. Yahweh is God. Jehovah is God. The God of the Bible is the true and living God. There is no other. And those who serve Him are like Elijah. We serve the very same living God. Really, this is more true for us today than it was for Elijah because why? God has revealed Himself perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have it even better. And by raising Jesus Christ from the dead, God won the victory over death and He proved that He was and is and will be the living God for all eternity. No questions asked. You can shut the book on it. And this living God that He served and that we still serve, He always keeps His word. Always. And we see that here. He kept His word of judgment to Israel. Verse 1 again. Look at it again. It says, As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my Word. Now, this drought in Elijah's day was not just some random natural disaster. This didn't just happen uh, randomly. This was a specific punishment, a specific judgment on God's people for their sin according to the Word of God. You see, according to God's law in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 through 17, drought was the judgment for pagan idolatry. God said it would happen. And what's happened now? It came to pass. God keeps His word of judgment. Folks, the judgments of Scripture are not idle threats. They are not to be ignored because they always come to pass. If God says He'll bring down the proud and punish sin and reserve the fires of judgment for those who rebel against Him and reject the Lord Jesus Christ, you better believe it and you better take Him at His word. It will happen. God keeps His word of judgment. But we also see here that God keeps His word of promise, just as He did for Elijah. In verses 2 through 6 in chapter 17, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening. And he drank from the brook. Folks, God said Elijah would drink from this brook, and guess what? He did And God uh, said that those crows would feed Elijah, and guess what? They did. Don't doubt the promises of Scripture. Amen. 
They are trustworthy. God did exactly what He said He would do for Elijah. And if God says He'll exalt the humble and forgive the sins of the people for Jesus' sake, for those who put their trust in Him, and prepare a place in heaven for everyone who trusts in Him, then believe it. Because it's going to happen. He is a God who keeps His word of promise. The living God not only keeps His word, but He takes care of His people. When the dew dried up, the text says, and the rain clouds disappeared, Elijah didn't shrivel up and die. Elijah didn't starve to death. Elijah didn't run out of water. He wasn't left for dead. In this evil day, God protected His servant. God protects His people. He provided for Elijah not only by extraordinary means, but notice he also provided an extraordinary abundance. He got to not drink just a little bit of water, not just enough to keep him alive. He got to drink as much water as he wanted to out of the brook. And he didn't just get a bite of bread a day. Those crows brought Elijah bread and meat twice a day. That's double what he provided for the children of Israel in the wilderness. They only got... Uh, manna and quail once a day. God provided for his servant. He gave Elijah as much as he needed to sustain him, even more really than he needed. And he'll do the same thing for us. That's right. That don't mean we won't suffer. Hey, he didn't have it easy over there at that brook, but he was provided with his needs. And we will be too. So again, what James said is true. Elijah was a man like us. He trusted in the living God. And he did it during an evil day. And since Elijah was a man like us, we're called to become men and women like Elijah. In chapter 17, we see something. That to live for God in an evil day, we must become a person of prayer. We must learn to be in the presence of this living God. At first glance in chapter 17, it seems as though God is doing all the talking through Elijah to Ahab, and Elijah didn't have a whole lot to do with it. But the book of James, if you'll look back there, if you kept your place there, it offers this insightful interpretation of the ministry of Elijah. Again, in James 5, 17, it says, Elijah prayed fervently. He prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain upon the earth. So notice, first of all, there Elijah is held up as an example for us by James, but he's not held up as an example of a great preacher or of a great prophet or of a miracle worker or even as a great athlete who can outrun a horse. Although he was all those things, James holds him up to us as, as an example of a person of prayer. Amen. You notice that? Of all the things he could have said, he points out his prayer life. That's where Elijah's strength was, on his knees. James indicates to us that the judgment that God announced to Ahab through Elijah was first prompted by the prayers of Elijah. So before God talked to Ahab, Elijah talked to God. Before the prophet came to the palace gates in Samaria, 
He was in his prayer closet in Gilead. And before he was on his feet, before this wicked king of Israel, he was on his knees before the righteous king of kings, praying fervently. And Elijah, if we study this carefully, had been on his knees in prayer for quite a long time. If we study the scriptures carefully, it will reveal to us just how long Elijah had been in prayer. According to 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1, the famine ended after three years, in the third year. But James says that Elijah prayed earnestly and it did not rain for three and a half years. Jesus said the same thing. Whenever he preached in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4, verse 25, he said, In Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, three and a half years, and a great famine came all over the land. And so just by doing a little math here, we figure out that Elijah had been in prayer for at least six months before he went and spoke to Ahab. At least six months. Fervently praying. So as he stood in the presence of old wicked King Ahab, I believe that Elijah was far more conscious that he was also standing there in the presence of the Almighty. And so he didn't have to fear. He didn't have anything to worry about. Because Elijah lived his life in the conscious presence of Almighty God, he was not frightened to stand before the most ungodly king Israel had ever seen. You see, the fear of God drives out the fear of man. He had the kind of spiritual boldness that's given only to those who abide in the presence of the living God. If we abide in His presence, we have confidence in Him, we don't have to fear man. Because they can't do anything to us that God doesn't allow. And then notice what Elijah prayed for. And this is why I prayed what I prayed during our prayer meeting. He prayed for judgment. Elijah prayed for judgment according to God's holy word. You remember what God's judgment was for pagan idolatry? We mentioned it earlier in Deuteronomy. Famine. And that's exactly what Elijah prayed for. Why did he pray for that? Why did he pray for judgment? Because he knew that spiritual apostasy, in other words, he knew that turning away from the one true God is a far worse disaster for a nation than physical calamity. And he knew that moral corruption is a greater tragedy for the people of God than material suffering. In other words, it's better for us to have some physical calamity and it's better for us to suffer from a lack of material goods than it is to go to hell. That's That's why he prayed for judgment. So I ask us tonight, and this really hit me when I was studying for this, do any of us dare to pray that kind of prayer today? To actually pray for God to bring judgment so people will turn back to Him. Asking God to act in judgment so people's hearts will turn to Him. You know, if we don't pray prayers like this, it may be because we're no longer men and women like Elijah was. Something to think about. Well, to live for God in an evil day, we must not only pray like Elijah did, 
but we must also obey. The Scripture says that Elijah went and did according to the word of the Lord in verse 5. He just went and did it. He obeyed. It sounds so simple, but sometimes the simple things are the hardest things to do, right? Well, we just simply need to obey the Lord. All the Lord wanted from Elijah was simple obedience to His revealed will. Elijah, obey, obey me in what you know to obey me in. That's all He wanted. That's all the Lord wants from any of us. Simply do what we know we ought to do. You know, Christians often struggle to know the Lord's calling for their lives. But if we'll just walk with God, we'll find that He leads us to the next step. Amen. To the next stop along the journey. He'll lead us. And notice that God, He did not tell Elijah to go to Cherith until after He delivered His message to Ahab. He didn't say, Elijah, go deliver this message to Ahab and then you're going to be able to go to this brook of Cherith and I'm going to take care of it. That's not what He did. He just said, go deliver this message to Ahab. And then silence. He didn't know what, he was, what was going to happen next. But verse 2 tells us, after that, then the word of the Lord came to him. God told him what to do next after he obeyed what he knew to do. Elijah went the whole way down from Gilead to Ahab, not having the slightest clue what God wanted him to do next. But he obeyed. Amen. He simply declared the judgment of God to Ahab, and then he waited on God's next call. God to call and lead him to where to go next. And Elijah's call came right on time, just like God's calls always do. Right on time. Not maybe on our timing when we want it, but perfectly with God's timing. God told Elijah where to go and just where he needed to go and at the perfect time how to get there and, where, and, and everything worked out. Verses 3 through 4, it says, He said to him, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan, and it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded these ravens to feed you there. That sounds crazy, don't it? But as crazy as that sounded, what does the Scripture say? He went and did according to the word of the Lord. He obeyed, just like every believer should. But living for God in an evil day takes more than one single act of obedience. It takes enduring obedience. It takes continuous obedience. We must obey one time after another. A lifestyle of obedience, if you will. See, once Elijah arrived in the place of God's provision, he had to stay there, right? And he did that. Verse 5 says he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. He stayed. He didn't just go for a minute and decide he was done with it. He stayed. And that couldn't have been easy for Elijah to stay there. I mean, he was, he was in hiding, really. He was hiding from Jezebel. He was hiding from Ahab. He was trying to keep out of danger. And you know, he was a human just like us. He must have had a little bit of worry whether or not they'd find him and kill him. He was also hidden from the people of Israel while he was hiding from Jezebel and Ahab. And so since he was hidden from the people of Israel, that meant that there wasn't only a famine of grain in the land, but now there was also a famine of the Word of God in the land. They weren't able to hear his preaching and his, his prophecy. And I believe that was very difficult for him. Because we find out by studying Elijah, he was a man of speech and a man of action. So it must have been hard for him to just sit there and wait and not be able to say anything or do anything. But Elijah stayed right where God put him. He obeyed. He obeyed continuously. And Elijah stayed put because he knew that God would stay with him. 
He knew if he obeyed God and stayed in God's will that God would stay with him. See, Elijah was not trusting in the brook. He was trusting in the God who made the brook. And Elijah did not put his confidence in these crows. He put his confidence in the Creator who created the crows and the Creator who caused those crows to deliver his food to him. That's what he put his trust in. You see, he learned not to trust in the outward circumstances of his provision, but in the God who does the providing. It doesn't matter what the provision looks like. God's going to provide. Trust in Him. Don't worry about what it looks like. Just trust that He's going to provide. That's what Elijah learned to do. Because we can do that. We can trust in the God who provides for us. Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. We can trust in Him. And listen, He has provided for us something infinitely better than some brook water and some uh, caviar delivered by crows, right? He's delivered, he's provided for us much better than that. God has provided for us the eternal water of life. He has provided for us the eternal bread of life in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has provided so good for us, abundantly, more than we could ask or think. And so, yes, we live in an evil day, just like Elijah. But guess what? We serve the very same eternal living God as Elijah. So let us, like Elijah, pray fervently and obey continuously and serve faithfully. Don't ask, where is the Lord God of Elijah? Ask, where are the Elijahs of the Lord God? Because God's looking for them. God's looking for you and I to live as faithfully as Elijah. It says in Second Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. He is looking for the Elijahs of the Lord God question is, will we be faithful like Elijah? I hope we will.